This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. We are going to be in our next in the sermon series, Equipped. If you have your study guide, I'd recommend having that out, both as a place to take some notes and jot some things down, but also be referencing it a couple of times throughout the sermon. We are taking a broad look at the big movements of God through the scriptures to see the big story of the Bible, and then we are learning along the ways Bible study skills. This morning's skill, we are talking about identifying the genre of literature that the Bible is written in and how that might impact our reading and understanding and learning from it to know biblical genres. So you'll want to know a little bit about that, but before we get into this, let's pray together. God, may your Holy Spirit illuminate the scriptures to your precious people here. As we look at the anointing of one of the great men of the faith, an example, not because he was perfect or always righteous of his own, but because he trusted in you and loved you with his whole heart. I pray that you will anoint these folks here in a similar way, knowing, Father, that it is not our impressive works and deeds that makes us acceptable, but it is our hope and faith in Jesus Christ who sacrificed and work on the cross was acceptable and pleasing to you. And so we come in Jesus' name, asking that we would learn now and grow, be transformed in the renewing of our minds through the preaching of your word. Help us, we pray. Amen. Well, we're in a season where we are thinking a lot about how we want to be governed and by whom in particular, which candidates, which political parties, which visions for our country do we want? So we're going to elect a president. That's not really anything new for us. In the sweep of the history of our nation, we do it every four years, and we've been doing it for hundreds of years. We've been doing it ever since we overthrew a king. The last king we had in our land was George III. He's the one who kind of prances around in Hamilton, if you've seen Hamilton. You know, historians say when it comes to the election of a president in the history of our presidents, that two of the best things that have ever been modeled for us came from our very first president, George Washington. The first is when he was elected president, people asked him what he wanted to be called. Do you know when he was commander of the Continental Armies, he would often be referred to as Your Excellency, kind of a royal title. But he, very, he wanted the people to recognize that the president was elected from among the citizenship of the country. And so he very simply wanted to be called Mr. President. That's why the, the sort of the highest title, the most honored title that our president gets isn't your excellency or your highness or his royal majesty. It's just simply Mr. President. That came from George Washington. He just decided, let's do that. Let's call me Mr. President. And secondly, George Washington gave up the presidency after two terms. It was not required by law in our country at that time, but George Washington felt like eight years was enough. And so he peacefully transitioned power. Second president was John Adams. 
And it sort of set the tone. And we've only had one president who served longer than two terms, but it wasn't law until relatively recently in the history of our country. A president could have stayed on, but George Washington set the tone. You know, really, George Washington could have been kind of a de facto king for the newly formed United States of America. People would have called him. He, he was revered. They would have called him whatever he wanted to be called. And he could have been president, probably historians agree, just as long as he lived. He basically could have set the tone for a new monarchy in the United States of America, but he didn't. And so as we think about what kind of government we want to have, we enter the story of God's people known as Israel when they're considering what kind of government, what kind of kingdom they want to be. We're making a big leap in time from where we were at last week with Moses and the Exodus. And God's people have done a lot. It's been hundreds of years. A lot has happened. And they're trying to decide, well, what kind of kingdom will we be? And so let me catch you up and then we'll talk about what they decide. So last Sunday, we were with Moses as he met God in the burning bush on a hillside. God had seemed maybe to be silent for several hundred years. In fact, he was not. He was just taking his time. He had been listening to the pleas and the cries of his people. If you remember back a few sermons before that, we met Abraham. Abraham was promised to be built into a great nation. His lineage would become a great nation, and that happens. God fulfills that promise. By the time we meet Moses, that nation comes from Abraham and Sarah and one of their sons. And by some good historical and archaeological estimates, might be more than two million people. And God uses Moses to bring those people who had been become enslaved in Egypt. They were kind of serf people in Egypt, laboring there under the cruel oversight of the Egyptians. Moses leads them out. You might know the story of the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, where God parts the sea. And the Hebrews go through on dry land, and the Egyptian army pursues, and God brings the water back into the sea and crushes the Egyptian army. From there, after they cross the Red Sea, the people that God has called out, the descendants of Abraham, journey toward the land that God promised them. Often in the Bible, especially early on, it's called Canaan. Sometimes it's just called the promised land. And it takes much longer than necessary to get to the land for this large group and to enter into it because, just to summarize, they often failed to put their hope and their faith and their trust in God. And so God needed to raise up a new generation that had learned to trust in him. And so once they're ready to enter into this promised land from all the way back at Abraham, we've now come many hundreds of years, for a little bit more than 400. Uh, the people go in, they cross into Canaan, and they drive out by war several inhabiting nations. They take possession of the land, and then they begin to settle the land. They break into smaller tribes. There was 12 tribes among the nations, and the tribes spread out around the land. 
And then after they settle the land, the next couple of hundred years go by, recorded in the book of Judges in your Bible. And it's a pretty depressing cycle. Judges is a pretty disheartening look at what can happen to faithful people of God. They go through period after period where they get comfortable in the land. They get lazy in both their stewardship of it and their worship of God. They forget him. They take on practices of other pagan nations that surround them. And they just fall into these pitiful states where they're weak and compromised as a people. And as part of his wake-up call and as part of his earthly judgment, God would often raise up one of the surrounding nations. And they would come and they would threaten the people who are now called the Israelites. And the land is often called Israel. And finally, after a nation would come, the nation of Israel, another nation would come and uh, wage war or begin to attack, the Israelites would be frayed and they would then recognize the sorry, pitiful state of not only their national identity, but their hearts, which was reflected in their lack of worship to God. And they would, and God would do something, they would cry out and God would do something gracious. He would raise up somebody known as a judge and the judge would lead the people in repentance and renewal. And then in these small kind of military campaigns, they drive out the coming armies, the warring nations. And for a time, the people would worship God and praise his name. But very, very quickly, they would fall back into their same old pattern. They'd look idolatrous and pagan like the rest of the ancient Near Eastern world. They quickly forget about God, and the cycle would start all over again. Toward the end of the book of Judges, there's this foreshadowing refrain. kind of summarizes what that time was like. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's kind of a refrain at the end of Judges. Now it says it that way because Israel didn't need a king. They're never supposed to have a king. Israel should never have even needed judges. They were to be different than other nations. They were to have a unique identity. God was supposed to be their king. They weren't supposed to be a monarchy. They were supposed to be a theocracy. God was to reign as king over them. God was to be the one who led them in renewal, and when other nations made war, they would follow God into victory, and he would be the source of their hope and their peace. <clears throat> the problem is the people had soft and weak hearts. <clears throat> they had trouble trusting God. They had trouble seeing him, and they had trouble following him. They felt vulnerable. They looked around. They couldn't see the spiritual realities of a God who was mighty to bring them out of Egypt, of a God who was mighty to drive out the people and give them the land that he promised to their ancestors generations and generations ago. They couldn't even see in the, in the cycle of the judges that God was mighty. And when they called on his name, he answered them. And so they began to say, we want the protection and the safety and the order that other nations seemed to have. They didn't really have it. 
but the Israelites thought they did. And so they began to cry out for a king. They said, other nations have a king. We want a king. We want to be like other nations. I remember the whole point was this would not be like other nations. This was not to be like other surrounding groups. This was to be a covenant community unto the Lord God. So God tells them this is a bad idea. It's a bad idea to ask for a king. A king is going to come and he's going to take from you and he's going to become selfish and conceited. He's going to think more about himself than he thinks about you. I want to be your king. Trust me as your king. But the people said, no, no, we, we want a king. We want an earthly king like the other nations. And so God says, okay. Where we begin reading in our Bible this morning, God has anointed a king. He's used a prophet. We'll meet him in just a minute. To raise up a king. At first, it seems like it's a pretty good king, but we're going to see very quickly that the king goes exactly, the kingship, the monarchy goes exactly like God predicted. And so we're going to be in 1 Samuel 16 in our Bibles. If you're not familiar with the book of 1 Samuel, use the table of contents in your Bible. It's probably about a third of the way through, depending on the thickness of your pages and the font size. But you're probably about a third of the way through your Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we're going to be reading. We're going to start at verse 1. 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, I'll introduce him in a minute, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. All right, you've only read one verse and you already know some things. There's a man named Samuel. You can probably assume that since this book is called 1 Samuel, Samuel's going to be important in the book. And you already know that there's a man named Saul and he must have been king, but he's not going to be anymore because God has rejected him. You already know a lot from verse 1 and that's exactly what it is. Samuel is a prophet, a great prophet of God. Like a lot of prophets, Samuel gets to see God do some really remarkable and amazing things. And Samuel has to be a, lot, a part of a lot of really hard things because the job of prophet means a lot of difficulty as well. So God used Samuel to identify Saul as the first king of Israel. And Saul seems to be a really good choice. He looks the part. He's tall. He's handsome. He's strong. And so he seems to be a good, godly king. He starts out humble. He's, he's godly at first. But something changes in just a few years in Saul, just like God said it would happen. He becomes proud and corrupt and paranoid and angry. He becomes a brutal, brutal man. His power consumes him. And you can especially see that toward anybody he believes to be a threat to him or his rule on the throne. So God tells Samuel now, verse 2, verse, second half of verse 1 really, Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? 
If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Remember, paranoid, angry, brutal. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me from him whom I declare to you. So I want to stop right here, and we're going to kind of, this is going to be a longer pause. I want to lay out a couple of things. The first has to do with studying this chapter and its implications, and then the second has to do with learning the Bible study skill that, that we're working on genre this morning. So first, Saul tell, or God tells Samuel he's going to go find the next king, but he doesn't say, you know, just go and find him and let him know he's up next. He says, go to Bethlehem. And find him, I'll show him to you, and you shall anoint him for me. You shall anoint him for me. This word to anoint has two general meanings in the Bible. And it's key here. The first is there's a ceremonial anointing. There are times when a sort of ritual is is performed and it has a symbolic meaning. It's a ceremony. It's like a crowning, or a knighthood, or a graduation, or anything else. It's a ceremonial type of thing. It's partly why God wants us to, uh, why God tells Samuel to fill his horn with oil. Oil was used during the anointing ceremony. But there's a second type of anointing in the scriptures. That's the one that we're much more concerned about with this morning. And that is there is a spiritual Anointing. Sometimes it's only ceremonial, but oftentimes the spiritual anointing is seen in a ritualistic or a ceremonial or a representative anointing. So later in this chapter, down in verse 16, we'll see that when Samuel anoints the new king, God's presence will remain now with the new king and it will leave, God's presence will leave the former king, Saul. At first, that's not even very apparent to many people. Saul actually stays king for a long time. But the spiritual reality of what is happening here is much different. God is anointing, he's placing his presence, saying his presence is with a new king. So that's the first thing. We're going to come back and we're going to look at anointing in a little bit. But before we do that, secondly, I want to uh, just set us up to read this well. So I want to talk about the Bible study skill that we're working through this morning, and that's considering the genre of the biblical writing. Now, some of these Bible study skills might be newer to you, might be a little foreign to you, might stretch you a little bit. I don't think that'll actually happen to you with genre. When I say genre, if you have something from your high school education that pops into your mind about literary genre, that's probably pretty close to what we mean when we say identifying biblical genre. So just like you can read fiction or nonfiction, and then there are many subcategories under those. You could read biographies, or you could read history, or you could read philosophy, or you could read journalism, the different nonfiction categories. If you like fiction, you can read mysteries, or science fiction, or fantasies, or you could read poetry, or you could read drama. 
whatever you're reading, knowing the genre you're reading is crucial to understanding what it is that you have in front of you. The book, the article, the poem, is your understanding of that is greatly impacted by knowing what type of writing it is. What category should you place it in? Now, this is here's just an example. This is extreme and it's obvious, but you're not going to read Harry Potter and think, oh my gosh, I had no idea of all the things that were happening in the wizarding world around me. You're not, you know that that's not history. You know that that's fantasy. You know that that's a story because you come to it, and it, it, that happens almost automatically in your brain. You know that the genre of this is different than when you read a newspaper. You know that it's different than when you read a biography of George Washington. You know that these things are different. First Samuel belongs to a pretty big genre category in the Bible that we'll just call historical narrative. And that's important because we need to know first, we're reading history, and it's also important to know that this is narrative history. It's, it's, it's presented from a particular point of view in a narrative form. It's in sequence. And so this is not told to us, for instance, from Saul's point of view. At times, it's, it's a little bit from Samuel's point of view, but the narrator knows far more than Saul, and he actually knows some of the internal things that are happening in Saul. He knows far more than Samuel. He knows many of the internal things happening with Samuel. And the reason that he knows that is probably because First and Second Samuel both were written. We don't know exactly who wrote them. Probably they were uh, compiled based on records that Samuel and some of his apprentices left. But the narrative, the historical narrative that is for Samuel is different and comes to us in a different way than other biblical categories of genre. And that's important to know. So this is on your table. And I put a table in your study guide. I tried to group the books of the Bible into as few and as general groups of genre as possible. So when you start to read through a book of the Bible... One of your early questions should be, what's the main genre of this book? It's going to help you along the way because another big question is, what's the author trying to communicate? That's another one of our skills is authorial intent. We're going to do that much later in the series. But as you try to understand, what does God have for me in this? Understanding the genre that you're reading is going to really help you to interpret the Bible. Historical narratives are going to be far more straightforward than poetry or wisdom books. Other, those are other categories. If you were to look at Psalms and Proverbs, for instance, those are poetry and wisdom books, you would see a very different kind of writing. And accordingly, you should know that it needs to be interpreted in a different way. One place where people trip themselves up, and one of the reasons it's important to know genre, is sometimes when people are studying the Bible... If they're not paying attention to genre, they expect all the verses of the Bible to behave and look similarly, and they're sort of challenged and perplexed when they don't. And so let me just give you a couple of examples. If you're studying poetry, you can expect to have a flowery, often symbolic language. 
it is not necessarily to always be taken literally. So Psalm 23 is a well-known psalm, and it's a good example. There it says that the author, God makes the author lie down in green pastures, and that restores, and God restores his soul. If you read Psalm 23 like historical narrative or law, you're going to think, well, I guess in order to be restored by God, I need to go lay down in a field someplace. And that would be challenging because we don't have a whole lot of green pastures. You'd have to wonder, does this field out here, is that pastury enough for me to go lay down in it? And how long do I need to lay there before I've been renewed? No, you understand that what the author is saying <clears throat> is that his relationship to God is like the, the call, and God brings to his heart the type of peace that one might have when they're in a beautiful place on a calm day and they're not doing anything but relaxing there. You understand that. And that's an obvious example, but you get that. Now you can flip that back to where we're reading right now. And if you're treating this historical narrative like poetry or allegory, you're going to again ask the wrong questions. You're going to say, what was the horn and what's the oil representative of? That's the wrong question. This is narrative. It says that Samuel filled his horn, which is like a container, with oil because Samuel filled his horn with oil. That's, it's not representative of anything. It just happened. Genre can orient you to what you're reading, and it can give you a particular perspective on what the author is trying to communicate. It can remind you that different types of interpretive skills may be needed for you to not overreach or not miss what's being said. So one of the biggest Bible study fallacies that, that genre, identifying genre, helps us guard against is asking the question, authorial intent, what did the author mean to communicate when he wrote this? So this section of scripture is a really good example. In a minute, we're going to meet David. David is the anointed the next anointed king. And in the very next chapter of the Bible, it's the well-known story of David and Goliath. Even if you have no biblical background, my guess is you've heard about David and Goliath. The small boy teenager defeats the mighty warrior. Now remember, you're reading a historical narrative. So you ask the question, why is that here in my Bible? The battle between David and Goliath is in the Bible, at least first, because it happened. It's history. We are meant to learn about God. We're absolutely meant to learn about spiritual living and the Christian life. It further introduces us to David. But the mistake that many people make when they're reading, particularly like these historical narratives that we're in is they forget that they're reading history and they start asking where they are in the story. And then you get people asking questions like, well, what's my Goliath? And pretty soon they've read the historical narrative in the Bible and concluded, well, this must be in my Bible because I'm supposed to take on a big obstacle 
what is and so they begin asking well, what's preventing me from happiness or what's preventing me from fulfillment that must be my goliath folks that's a terrible way of understanding the story of david and goliath to ask where's your goliath that's not why that story is in your bible it's a historical narrative it's in your bible because david fought goliath you're not david and your boss isn't goliath I'll keep going. I've done a lot of George Washington this morning. I'll do more George Washington. So on the night of Christmas, 1776, George Washington planned a daring attack. You might know a little bit about this. He led a uh, small crew across the Delaware River to attack a German and British encampment. The Germans, the Hessians, were working with the British at that point. They were camped at Trenton, New Jersey. They were centered into what's called winter quarters. Now I'm just going historical nerd on you. They'd centered into winter winter quarters. And uh, George Washington led them on, on the night of December 25th, into the morning of the 26th, and they had to cross the icy Delaware River at night, very cold. And they had to be ready and hidden by the time the sun rose in the morning so they could make a surprise attack. Now, if you read that, you're reading, if you read about that, you're reading historical narrative. But you're not asking, where am I in that story? Like, you you would never hear that about George Washington and then say, what am I supposed to attack on Christmas this year? And that's obvious, because you're not George Washington. You're reading about history. Now, that doesn't mean you can't learn something, I suppose, from that. And it certainly doesn't mean that we're not meant to see many spiritual truths and realities from the story of David and Goliath. But this is historical narrative. We're not meant to ask, where am I in this story? That's what genre can help prevent. So let's get back into 1 Samuel 16, and we'll study this particular one, knowing a little bit what we know about genre. So remember, Samuel has come to Bethlehem to look at the sons of Jesse and to anoint, again, that key word, a new king. Verse 4 now. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet with him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? This is how you know it was hard to be a prophet. The The people see you coming, and they either know... This might be good or it might be really bad. I don't think there was a lot in the middle of this. And so Samuel said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Apparently he was strong and tall and looked the part. But the Lord said to Samuel, remember Saul looked the part too. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel and said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. 
And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Before we go on, just think of what you already know in this story. One of these sons, you already know this, one of these sons is going to be the next king. Jesse assumes, even Samuel assumes, it's going to be one of the tall, strong, obviously favored sons. Because when Samuel, this great prophet, says, let me see your sons, Jesse only brings seven, even though he had eighth. He completely forgets the eighth son. So that's the setup. Even the phrase that's used to describe what the eighth son's doing, well, he's out tending or keeping the sheep. That's meant to sound kind of derogatory. It was a lowly job. Now oh, he's out someplace doing what nobody else wants to do. So keep going in verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah, another place. Now, I'm going to stop reading there. I'll just tell you what happens in the rest of the chapter. So the next verse says that the spirit of the Lord left Saul. And he was tormented, Saul, by a harmful spirit. This is an interesting kind of qualifier. The harmful spirit is from the Lord. So in order to ease his anguish, what Saul does is his servants, his attendants suggest, well, why don't you have somebody who's good at music come and play for you? And maybe that will sort of help you. It will lighten your mood. And so Saul requests that David, they kind of identify David. He, he played an instrument. He says, why don't I want David to come and play music for me? Now, keep in mind, Saul has at this point no idea who David is. Remember, Samuel kind of went on a covert mission to Bethlehem. He went to make sacrifices, God commanded, but that was sort of uh, put in place so that Saul wouldn't know what's happening. So Saul has no idea who David is or what his role will be, but God is now orchestrating events. Very shortly after he's anointed as king, David is brought very near to the current king. Here, take some time. But David becomes king. He's a great king in a lot of ways. He secures the national border, moves the capital, moves his capital from a, a little village to Jerusalem. He unites the people. And he is absolutely a much better king than Saul. But, but David is by no means perfect. At various points, and we know a lot about David. The rest of these couple of books of Samuel are really about Saul and then a little bit about a little bit about Saul, but David. And then David's story and his line kind of continues on. We'll get to that. But at various points we learn that David is guilty of pride, greed, adultery, and murder. 
all of those things and more. Yet he is remembered in Acts 13.22 as a man after God's heart. And God makes him a promise. We've seen God make three promises already. Promise to Abraham, promise to Moses, and now God makes a promise to David. And that's in, in God's promises to da- promise to David is that David's lineage and his kingdom would last forever. And we need to know this about David. We need to see this because for the rest of the Old Testament... David is held up as the example of a person who lives by faith in God. David's the example. For the rest of the the Old Testament, this is the man that people point to and say, that's how you live with faith in God, and we need another one of him, and we're just looking for the next David. That's what the people of Israel are doing for the, the rest of the Old Testament, is looking for the next David. Now, on the one hand, that makes a little bit of sense. He's clearly anointed and chosen by God. Remember, we saw that. He was picked out by a great prophet, ceremonially and spiritually anointed. But on the other hand, he makes some colossal, I mean, David makes almost unthinkable mistakes and sins in ways that most of us will not even sin in our life. You almost can't believe it, but what emerges from the rest of the pages of Scripture is in his kindness and in his grace, it's not just the people of Israel, God's people who make David their example, but God makes David the example of life, of of living by faith. And this is why. It's what we see from the rest of Scripture. Eventually, in the New Testament, it absolutely becomes Jesus. But what God does is he says, David was both chosen and anointed. And yet, when you look at his life up close, there's no real obvious reason for it. David was not a model of morality. He was not at many points, a holy man. The story that emerges from the rest of Scripture is that it was not David's greatness or his piety or really anything that he could do that brought about God's anointing. But it was God's anointing that made David special. Did you catch that? It wasn't David that made David special and so that God would want to anoint him. It was that God anointed David, and in doing that, God made him special. And folks, the same thing remains true today. Except it's not just through David. It's not through oil. It's not through a human prophet. It's through Jesus. God calls and anoints many, many people. And just like David, it's not because of their greatness. It's because of God's heart and because of his love. In 1 John, one of the letters in the New Testament, 2.20, it's written by John, one of the men Jesus entrusted 
to lead the early church. John is trying to warn people about threats and build their confidence in God's power to protect them. And this is what he says. He says, you have been anointed by the Holy One. The Holy One is Jesus. And you have all knowledge. The context here in 1 John is there are enemies of the gospel. And they're trying to pull people away from faith in Jesus. But John says that true Christians won't be pulled away because they are anointed by God. And when he says, you have been anointed, when you study this letter and when you look at, well, who does he mean by you? It becomes evident that he means all Christians. So we see in the Old Testament, folks, an anointing of one man who isn't anointed because of his greatness, but becomes great because of God's anointing. But by the time we move into the New Testament, we see that it's not just one who God anoints, but through Jesus, all people that are called Christians, all people who trust in the name of Jesus are similarly anointed by God. They know the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22 says that every one of God's promises are a yes because of Jesus. And the way we know we have those promises from Jesus in that we will receive all the promises of God is that he has anointed us and given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment. That's First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, rather, 1, 21 and 22. And so if you are a Christian, you have been called and anointed by God in much the same way that David was. But our anointing comes from a place so much better than even David's did. David was anointed when a, a prophet, a hu another man, came and, and poured oil over him. Our anointing comes from Jesus. We call him Jesus the Christ. The title Christ literally means to be anointed. Jesus Christ is much more literally Jesus the anointed one. And now Jesus the anointed one takes some of that anointing. And similarly to Samuel anointing David with oil, pouring oil over David, Jesus pours his anointing onto us, onto every single Christian. And just like David, you aren't anointed because you have so much to offer and so much to bring and God is so spectacularly pleased with you. You're anointed because God has decided to, because God loves you, because God wants to see you raised up and seated with him on the throne. We'll talk about that in just a second. The way that John says it later in John, first, that word anointed comes up again in 1 John 2. It says that the anointing of Jesus abides in us. That means it stays in us. It is permanently attached to us. It is ours. God, God, God called and anointed David and promised him that his line would rule forever. As, as you trace 
the story of Scripture, and we're going to keep going in this sermon series. These all link up together. David's lineage doesn't actually do very well. Eventually, after actually not too long, the throne is again vacant in Israel, and it stays that way for a long time until Jesus Christ comes. Jesus is born into the line of David. And the Bible says that he comes to be king over God's people once and for all time. Jesus comes to be the sure and the true and the better David. God anoints Jesus. Jesus is the king, the real and true king. But he's the king that doesn't get greedy, that doesn't get proud, that doesn't murder. And that anointing that God pours over Jesus, his son, with whom he is well pleased. In turn, Jesus pours it out onto his people. Doesn't come because we are impressive or because we have something to offer. Quite the contrary, it comes only because God is abundantly, abundantly gracious. You and I, we have nothing good to bring in return. And so right now, if you are struggling to know whether or not God is with you, whether he's for you, if you want to know, are these promises of God that I read in the Bible? I, there's, there's many, many great things, folks, to read in the Bible that you will never be left on your own, that you will never be forsaken, that nothing will separate you from the love of Christ, that even the worst things in the world, God will turn for his glory and your good, that there's no evil force or force of darkness that can overpower God, that he loves you and your family more than you will ever be able to. That any anxiety is not necessary because God looks after all that he has created. And you are among the pinnacle of his creation. I could go on and on and on with the great promises that God gives to people who trust him in faith in the Bible. But if you're wondering, are those promises yes for me? Are they there for me? Are they mine? Know that you will never fall away from them because God has anointed you. God has poured out not oil over you, but his spirit onto you. And so now you literally become a dwelling place for God himself. For him to live inside of you, for him to take what was dead and bring it to life. And so that you... Do you know you don't just go to heaven as a Christian, but you are an heir with Christ. You reign in heaven as a Christian. Do you know that? And God has done that because he's anointed you. Folks, he anointed David to be king. But David just was anointed to be king over a small little patch of land in the Middle East. You, Christian, are anointed to be king over and with Christ and to reign over all the vast kingdom, everything that God has created. You've been anointed that way. 
And God promises, seals you with the Holy Spirit, that his anointing will never depart from you. You get to live with him and reign with him, the kingdom forever. That's the promise. Titled this message, God anoints a king. He does. He, he, he anointed David. But folks, God anoints you, and he anoints you as sons and daughters, heirs, to be like kings, like queens in the kingdom of heaven. It's a great and wonderful promise. Let's pray. God, you are a great and merciful God. We thank you for your servant, David, who shows us that it is not perfection, but faith that unites us to you. That it is not piety, but repentance that is the mark of the Christian. Absolutely, we want to be holy people, God, but we want to be people with hearts turned toward you. Pursuing righteousness, but when we fail, repenting in Jesus' name. God, I pray for all who can hear my voice. May they know that they are anointed as sons and daughters of the King. Heirs in the kingdom of heaven. What a great and precious truth that is. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the Holy One, the Anointed One. Amen.